Father God, we praise you um, that even now we can meet together in this way. And we pray that uh, you would speak to us through your word now and help us to see and to love Jesus. Amen. Well, you want to keep uh, open Psalm 110. Um, that's where we'll be for this evening. Now, right at the end of Macbeth, the title character is dead and the rightful king is returned to his throne. And in that final scene, it's, it's basically the last, the second to last kind of stanza of the, of the play. Macduff walks in holding Macbeth's head in his hand. And he says to King Malcolm, Hail, King, for so thou art. Behold, where stands the usurper's cursed head. Hail, King of Scotland. Now, two weeks ago on Palm Sunday, we saw the rightful king return, entering Jerusalem to reclaim his throne. But he didn't just come to reclaim David's throne in Jerusalem from the usurper Herods, as people expected the Messiah to do. No, Jesus came to do far more than that. And in Psalm 110, we're going to see a brilliant description of that this evening. Now, in that second reading from Luke, we heard a conversation that Jesus had with the Pharisees just a couple of days before he died. And this little conversation is important for us as we approach Psalm 110, because there's no debate here. The subject of this psalm is the Messiah, God's anointed king. Now, it can be a bit confusing to pick apart all the different lords in this psalm. So let me just explain quickly. In verses one, two and four, you get the Lord in capital letters right at the beginning. And that is God. So our English translations uh, translate the name Yahweh, God's name, uh, into this all capitals Lord. And then a lowercase Lord in verse one and then again in verse five refer to David's Lord, the Messiah. And this psalm is in Jesus' mind as he approaches the end of his earthly mission. Because he knows that this psalm is all about him. And he knows as he comes to the cross that he's close to living out what this psalm describes. So this evening we're going to see three things that this psalm tells us about Jesus, the Messiah, that should make us cheer. The first is this. Jesus is the king to end all kings. That's verses one to three. Now, Psalm 110 is is widely regarded as the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. And after this quote in the Gospels that we've read, the next comes in Acts 2, just after the apostles have received the Holy Spirit. And as Peter addresses the crowd and gives them a sort of Bible overview, he quotes Psalm 110 verse 1 as he finishes his speech. And he says this, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you can now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So this Psalm of David, which was written about 3000 years ago, is speaking about what is now a present reality. As Jesus approached the cross, this psalm was in his mind because it reminded him of what lay on the other side of his crucifixion. A place at God's right hand, ruling in the midst of his enemies. And as Jesus sits at God's right hand, his rule is extending. Look at verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendour. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Whilst the day when Jesus' enemies will be defeated once and for all lays in the future, his rule as king has begun. He is sat on his throne in heaven. I remember it stuck in my head. The, the last Sunday we were able to meet in the building, Chris Dead was leading, and he opened the service by reminding us of that fact. In the middle of all of this, Jesus is sat on his throne, and that isn't changing. And God promises to extend that rule from that throne, out from Zion, from Jerusalem, into the world, even as his enemies continue to rage. This is what David could never do. This is why another greater Lord was needed. Someone who could establish his rule in the midst of his enemies and extend that rule. One day crushing those enemies once and for all. There is no danger that King Jesus will be removed from his throne. And so right now we live in a time when Jesus is reigning on his throne and his rule is spreading. In Acts 1 verse 8, just as Jesus is about to ascend to take this place at God's right hand, he says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria, that covers the whole of Israel, and to the ends of the earth. After the victory of the Chinese communist armies in 1949 and suppression of religion, the members of all missionary societies departed or were expelled from China. <clears throat> now, at that time, there were only around 700,000 Christians in China, well under 1% of the population. Now, this seems like a victory for Jesus' enemies. But actually, Jesus' rule is extending. Today, even while China still ranks at number 23, on the Open Doors watch list, world watch list of places where Christians are most persecuted, the 23rd hardest place to be a Christian in the world, there are an estimated 97.2 million Christians in China. Jesus is ruling, even in the midst of his enemies. And as his people bear witness to him, his rule extends. That's what verse 3 is describing. Willing troops serving Jesus as they see him in all of his glorious beauty. Jesus is the king to end all kings. And he is, as we speak, sat at God's right hand ruling. 
even in the midst of his enemies. The second thing this psalm tells us about Jesus is that Jesus is the priest to end all priests. I don't know if you noticed as David read it, but verse four really sticks out like a sore thumb from this psalm. If you were to take it out, the the remaining six verses would flow really well. They'd be all about this king. It would make complete sense. But right here, right in the center of the psalm, a prominent place to put climactic themes in Hebrew poetry, this verse is shouting loudly for our attention. Let me read it again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, in the Mosaic law, the two roles of king and priest are clearly distinguished. In fact, Saul's presumption to act as a priest in 1 Samuel 13 was one stone in a number that shattered his rule as God's anointed king. So why is David now talking about a king also being a priest? Well, it all comes down to this fascinating character, Melchizedek. Don Carson says that Melchizedek turns out to be one of the most instructive figures in the entire Bible for helping us put our Bibles together. Then beyond that, not only helping us put our Bibles together, but seeing clearly who Jesus is. Now, sadly, we're not going to have time to do him justice this evening. But if you've ever read the book of Hebrews, the name will be familiar. He first comes on the scene back in Genesis 14. After Abraham has just defeated Keloloma and the kings allied with him, we read in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed Abraham. That's it. He seems to just kind of come out of nowhere and then disappear again. This Psalm 110 is the next time he comes up in the whole Bible and then he comes up in Hebrews and that is it. Melchizedek and yet the Messiah is to be a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. How does this guy walk into and out of the history of God's people in just three verses in Genesis 14 with no explanation and then become a crucial part in God's plan for the future Messiah? In a book that's all about origins, Genesis, where everyone who matters gets a kind of full genealogy or at least connected to their their parents and grandparents in some way, this guy gets nothing. We don't know where he's come from or where he's going. But the footnote on verse 18 in Genesis 14 tells us that Salem is in fact Jerusalem. You see, before it was Israel's home, before Israel as a nation even existed, on the throne in the city of Jerusalem, in that stretch of land next to the Mediterranean, in that city, there sat a king who was also priest of God Most High. And so David, as he writes this psalm, is himself sitting on the throne of the priest king. But he is only king, not priest. And yet he sees one who he calls his Lord, who will be both priest and king. The priest king in Zion, Jerusalem. 
in Zechariah 6, verse 12, before those famous Easter verses, God speaks about one who will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne, and there will be harmony between the two. How is that possible? Well, Psalm 110 tells us how. You see, Jesus, in one sense, has a strong genealogy. You get one in Matthew and one in Luke, tracing his descent from Adam, Abraham, David. And yet, in another sense, just like Melchizedek, Jesus comes from nowhere. He has no origin, no genealogy. He just is. Now, that's all explained at length in Hebrews 7, which I'd encourage you to read later. But after quoting verse four of our psalm three times, Hebrews does a lot of the work for making this the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And applying it to Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says this. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. He lives forever to intercede for us, the one with no beginning and no end. But Jesus goes one further than Melchizedek. Because Jesus is not just the priest. He is also the once for all sacrifice. He is able to be our priest Forever, because by his sacrificial death on the cross, he who had no sin bore the penalty for the sin of the whole world once and for all. You see, by nature, we are all stuck in the enemy camp. You are a footstool by nature. The essence of sin is treason against the rightful king, Jesus. We want to usurp his throne and make ourselves kings and queens in his place. But this king didn't come to remove our heads. This king came to face the punishment for our treason himself. So that we can be restored to his kingdom. To give us new hearts so that instead of being his enemies, we can willingly joyfully serve him as king as we see him in all of his holy majesty his glorious splendor jesus is the king to end all kings and the priest to end all priests and finally jesus is the judge to end all evil the judge to end all evil now verses one to four all talk about what is currently presently true Jesus is sat at God's right hand. He is the priest king. Verses five to seven are about the future. When Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. Let me read those verses to us. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way. And so he will lift his head high. Anybody can turn to Jesus and move from the footstool camp to the willing troop camp. 
but one day he will return and his enemies will be destroyed once and for all. The footstool will be crushed underfoot. Jesus is the king to end all kings, both because he lives forever as king over God's people, so there will be no king after him, and because he quite literally puts an end to all other kings. This is the final triumph over evil, over the enemies of the one true king. And that includes everything that doesn't belong in the world that he brought to being. Here we see Jesus returns to put an end to all evil, to crush his enemies and to establish his rule, no longer in the midst of his enemies, but in the new creation with his willing troops. I wonder if you've thought about what you'll do once lockdown is lifted. What are you most looking forward to? Seeing friends face to face? Being able to have people over to your house? Meeting together again as a church family in person in the building? And can you imagine how you'll feel when this is all over? When it, what it will feel like to go out with other people for the first time after all this is over? Maybe you can imagine how Malcolm felt when Macbeth was killed and he was able to go home. <clears throat> well, if we look down again at verse 7, this is the picture of a victorious soldier when the battle is done. Getting a refreshing drink from a brook, lifting his head high, it's over. The battle is done. It's finished. There's a sense of relief there. Of, of kind of joyful renewal as he takes that drink. You may have seen last Sunday that I posted a song by Andrew Peterson in the church Facebook group. Tom used it as the background music for the video of the Watts' Easter window display. And it's a song called His Heart Beats. And it kind of pictures, imagines those first moments when breath flows back into Jesus' lungs on Easter morning. And a couple of lines go like this says his heart beats now everything is changed and then in the chorus it says he took one breath and put death to death when jesus heart began to beat on easter morning the whole world changed the ending to the story has been written and it can't be changed however you're feeling now However much you can imagine the relief of coming out of lockdown. Verse 7 here describes a sort of relief, a sort of renewal that is scarcely imaginable to us now, but will one day be ours for all eternity. Now, Jesus reigns on his throne in the midst of his enemies, the priest king. One day he will return as judge to crush those final enemies. And then he will lift his head high. The work will be done. And we will rest with him for eternity in the new creation, no longer in the midst of any enemies. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you for this picture of Jesus in Psalm 110. And we pray, Father, that you would press deep into our hearts a love for him. Please help us to see him more clearly in all of his splendor and majesty. And especially in these days of the coronavirus, 
but but beyond as well, would you keep fixing our minds a longing for that day when he returns and we lift our heads high with him. Amen.